Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift, it's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. It is a truth, universally acknowledged, that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. That's how Jane Austen began her most famous novel. In Pride and Prejudice, middle-class girl Elizabeth Bennet dreams of marrying the wealthy Mr. Darcy and experiencing the comfort of his large estate and fortune. The book is Austen's satirical take on a dilemma she saw for women of her era, that their best chance at a comfortable life was to marry rich. The idea that marriage was much more of a business venture than it was a romantic gesture had been around for centuries. Entire royal bloodlines were built around this concept. Wealthy families typically groomed their daughters, sent them to finishing school, taught them proper etiquette, all in the effort to potentially marry them off to other wealthy families and cement financial relationships between them. And whereas there was a whole cottage industry built around the grooming of eligible bachelorettes from wealthy backgrounds, poor, single women were pretty much on their own. Long before Tinder and Craigslist, the only avenue open to women from the lower classes to find Mr. Wright was to advertise what they had to offer. The first Lonely Hearts ads came to be published in England all the way back in 1695, just five years after the invention of the modern newspaper. It was a service only men were allowed to use until 1727, when Englishwoman Helen Morrison became the first woman to publish one such ad in the Manchester Weekly Journal. A man responded, but it wasn't the type of response she was hoping for. It was the mayor, and he had her committed to an insane asylum for a month for her indiscretion. Lonely Hearts ads remained popular throughout the 18 and 1900s which of course opened the door for professional scam artists to realize they could use the classifieds to find lonely and vulnerable people that they could trick out of their money. Many people lost their fortunes to such criminals, and more than a few lost their lives as well. I'm Nate Hale crying lonely tears over my microphone, and this is The Conspirators. In 1907, the following ad ran in Chicago Daily Newspapers. Comely Widow, who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, 
desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided, with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visits. Triflers need not apply. The ads were placed by a woman named Belle Sorensen Gunnis, a Norwegian immigrant who lived in Laporte, Indiana with her three children. She was a hard woman, both physically and mentally strong, and she struck everyone who met her as a particularly imposing figure. She grew up in poverty to a large family. When she was 18 years old and still living in Norway, she attended a country dance while pregnant. While there, she was attacked by a man who kicked her repeatedly in the stomach, causing her to miscarry. After that, according to reports, Belle was never the same again. The man who attacked her died not long after that, supposedly of stomach cancer. Belle worked on a wealthy family's farm long enough to earn her passage to the U.S. in 1881. Three years later, she married a man named Mads Ditlev Anton Sorensen in Chicago. A couple years later, they opened a confectionery store, but the business failed. Within a year after opening its doors, the shop mysteriously burned down. Belle and her husband collected the insurance money and used it to pay for another home. The couple had four children, two of whom died in infancy, allegedly of acute colitis, the symptoms of which include nausea, fever, diarrhea, and lower abdominal pain. Those are, of course, all symptoms of poisoning as well. Both infants had life insurance policies taken out of them, and both paid out. Sometime around 1900, Belle adopted another daughter, a 10-year-old girl originally named Morgan, but who later became known as Jenny. Belle's husband died on July 30, 1900, the only day on which two life insurance policies which were taken out in him overlapped. Although the doctor who examined the body thought he may have suffered from strychnine poisoning, he ultimately concluded the cause of death to be heart failure. No autopsy was ever performed, and Belle collected on both insurance policies. After that, Belle purchased a house in Laporte, Indiana. That's where she married a recent widower named Peter Gunnis on April 1, 1902. Just one week later, Peter's infant daughter died of unknown causes while alone in the house with Belle. In December of that year, Peter met with a tragic accident when, according to Belle, he was reaching for his slippers next to the kitchen stove when he was scalded with hot brine. Somehow this managed to cause part of a sausage grinding machine to fall from a high shelf, crushing his skull and killing him. After that, Peter's oldest daughter went to live with an uncle in Wisconsin. She was the only child to survive living with Belle. Belle collected the insurance money on Peter's death despite the fact that the district coroner declared that the man's death had been murder. The coroner's jury was convened to look into the matter, but Bell managed to convince investigators that she was innocent, and she walked free. In May 1903, Bell, who had been pregnant with Peter's son, gave birth. In late 1906, she began to tell people that her adopted daughter Jenny had gone away to live in a Lutheran school in Los Angeles. By 1907, Bell hired a farmhand named Ray Lamphier to assist her on her property. It was right around this same time she began posting her classified advertisements looking for a husband. Several middle-aged men responded to Gunnis's ads. These included a man named John Moe, who arrived from Elbow Lake, Minnesota with more than $1,000 cash on him. He was never seen again. 
The next man to arrive on Bell's doorstep was George Anderson, another immigrant from Norway. During dinner, Bell raised the idea that she would marry Anderson if he would agree to pay off her mortgage. He agreed, then he settled into sleep for the night in Bell's guest room. He was startled awake in the middle of the night to see Bell standing over him. She was holding a candle, and in the flickering glow he swore he saw murder in her eyes. Anderson screamed and Bell left the room. The man quickly gathered up his things and fled without saying another word to her. The suitors kept coming to Bell's home, but Anderson was the only one known to leave alive. After a while, she began ordering huge trunks be delivered to her home. The delivery driver later remarked how amazed he was by Bell's strength. She was able to lift each of the trunks easily on her broad shoulders and carry them into her house. She kept mostly to herself at this time, but sometimes her neighbors would see her digging at night with a shovel in her hog pen. The number of suitors who went to Bell's farm who were never seen again continued to grow. Her final victim was a man named Andrew Halgalian from South Dakota. The man's brother was suspicious about the circumstances surrounding his brother's disappearance. Bell tried to dissuade him with a bunch of vague stories, but it was clear she wouldn't be able to keep him at bay for long. Bell's hired hand, Ray Lamphere, was deeply in love with Bell, and he performed any chore she asked. But he was also jealous of all the many men who came to visit Bell, and he began to make angry public scenes insinuating there was something more going on than people knew. She fired him on February 3, 1908. Not long after that, Bell appeared at the LaPorte County Courthouse to make a statement that her former employee was mentally unstable and a threat to public safety. She convinced them to hold a sanity hearing in the hope they would lock him up. Lamphere was pronounced sane and released. She was back again a few days later to file another complaint against him, claiming she was afraid for the lives of herself and her children. She also drafted a new will at this time, leaving her entire state to her children. On April 28, 1908, Joe Maxson, the farmhand Bell hired to replace Lamphere, awoke in the early hours of the morning to the smell of smoke. The house was ablaze. Maxson leaped from the second-floor window of his room, dying from the fall. The bodies of Bell's children were found among the ruins once the smoke cleared. Bell, on the other hand, was nowhere to be found. They did find the charred remains of a headless woman among the rubble, along with a set of human teeth that the town dentist said may have belonged to Bell. The headless body appeared to be much tinier than Bell's six-foot-tall, 200-pound frame, though. Ray Lamphere was found guilty of the arson, but he soon fell ill after his conviction. He confessed to a priest before his death that he had been an accomplice to many of Bell's murders. Her typical method involved drugging the coffee of her many victims before bashing in their skulls with a meat chopper and dismembering the bodies in the basement. The remains were then dumped in the hog pens. Lamphere claimed the headless body they found was that of Bell's new maid, and that Bell was still alive out there somewhere. It's believed that Bell Gunnis murdered between 25 to 40 people, although they were only able to excavate the remains of 12 victims from the hog pen. Shortly before the fire, Bell had withdrawn all her money from the bank. In 1931, a woman named Esther Carlson was arrested in Los Angeles after poisoning a Norwegian-American man for his money. Some people claimed that Esther was really Bell Gunnis, but she died while awaiting trial, 
and her true identity has never been confirmed. Belle Gunnis wasn't the only murderer to use the personal ads to find her victims. The business of dating became so popular in the mid-20th century that special matrimonial bureaus began to form and flourish all over the U.S. Places where lonely men and women who were too shy or too busy could meet their potential significant other, for a small fee, of course. One such matrimonial bureau was Detroit's American Friendship Society, which opened its doors in 1927. There was plenty of business for them, even during the Great Depression. They lured in customers through the classified ads of pulp magazines with ads that read, Join the world's greatest social extension club. Meet nice people who, like yourself, are lonely, many wealthy. One may be your ideal. We have made thousands happy. Why not you? Thousands of eager customers responded. For an annual fee of $4.95 for men and $1.95 for women, members would receive a mail-order list of potential mates. Among the many desperate clients was a 50-year-old Danish-born widow named Asta Buick Eicher. She lived in Oak Park, Illinois with her three children, 14-year-old Greta, 12-year-old Harry, and 9-year-old Annabelle. It was tough raising three kids on her own. She needed a partner in her life, someone financially stable who could help fill the hole that had been there since her husband died eight years earlier. So Asta thought she may have hit the jackpot when she found an ad that read, Wealthy widower worth $150,000 has income from $400 to $2,000 a month. The man wrote that he was a successful civil engineer who owned a beautiful 10-room brick home, completely furnished with everything that would make a good woman happy. His wife would have her own car and plenty of spending cash and would have nothing to do but enjoy herself. It wasn't long before Asta and the fellow who wrote the ad a man who identified himself as Cornelius O. Pearson of Clarksburg, West Virginia, embarked on a long-distance courtship through the mail. Asta was shy at first. She wasn't a spring chicken anymore, and she knew she'd put on a few pounds over the years. It took some cajoling from Pearson before she agreed to send him a photograph. He complimented her about how well-preserved she was and how he preferred plump women. Pearson had a way with words. The great trouble with men, he said, is that they are so ignorant that they do not know that women must be caressed. He made her feel the way she hadn't felt in many years. That shortness of breath, those schoolgirl butterflies that tickled her stomach, the warm flush in her cheeks. Cornelius Pearson made her feel special. He made her feel wanted. And she wanted him too. There's no doubt about that. But there's an old saying about wanting something so badly. Sometimes you just might get it. It's unknown how Asta reacted when she finally got to meet Cornelius O. Pearson in the flesh. Was she surprised? Disappointed? He certainly wasn't what she would have been expecting. In his letters, he described himself as a tall, distinguished-looking gentleman with dark, wavy hair and clear blue eyes. What she got was a pudgy, moon-faced fellow with beady eyes behind thick spectacles. But whatever Asta's initial reaction might have been, over time, she appeared to be quite taken with him. Because in the spring of 1931, she kept inviting him back for more visits. She proudly told her neighbors that her new boyfriend was a real man of substance, one with major investments in the oil and gas industry, as well as a tidy nest egg of stocks and bonds paying a significant dividend. 
In July 1931, she asked her boarder, William O'Boyle, to find another place to live, because her gentleman friend, Cornelius Pearson, would be moving in. Nobody seemed to notice for a few weeks after that that she and her children vanished. One day in August, O'Boyle returned to Asta's home looking to pick up some of his tools he'd left behind, only to find Asta and the kids were gone, and the strange pig-faced man she'd introduced as Mr. Pearson emptying the house. O'Boyle called the police. Pearson told the police that Asta Iker and her children had moved to Colorado, and that she had left him to settle her affairs. He produced a letter that appeared to be in Asta's handwriting giving him permission to prepare the house for renters. Detectives searched the house and discovered 27 letters from Cornelius Pearson. A couple months later, they were able to trace Cornelius Pearson back to his home in Clarksburg, West Virginia. As you probably guessed, his name wasn't Pearson at all. The name of the man they found was Harry F. Powers, and he wasn't a wealthy bachelor with a huge portfolio of investments. Powers was a married vacuum cleaner salesman. His wife Lula sold sundries out of a tiny shop attached to their home. At first, Powers denied he'd ever met Mrs. Iker. But when the detectives confronted him with the letters, he reluctantly admitted he had corresponded with the woman, but he knew nothing of her disappearance. Detectives checked property records and learned that Powers and his wife owned a small plot of land, inherited from her father, in a place called Quiet Dell. Police went to check out the property and discovered a ramshackle wooden bungalow that clearly hadn't been occupied for many years. But directly across the road from the bungalow was something suspicious. A large, newly built shed, about the size of a three-car garage. The door was secured with a pair of new padlocks. Detectives pried them open with a crowbar and went inside. There were no cars inside, but there were plenty of cardboard boxes, most of which contained the personal belongings of Mrs. Iker and her three children. As the officers pushed their way through the stacks of boxes, one of them noticed a trap door in the concrete floor. He swung the door open and they all took a step back as their nostrils were hit by a putrid odor. The officers used flashlights as they descended the steps into darkness. The cellar contained four cramped soundproof cells, each with its own heavy wooden door. The only furnishing in each cell was a bare, filthy mattress laid out on the concrete floor. They found a few blood-stained pieces of clothing scattered around the cellar, but there was no sign of Asta Iker or her children. Their bodies weren't found until the following day when officers from the Sheriff's Department and State Police, along with members of a road gang from the county jail, scoured the property. They found their bodies stuffed into burlap sacks in a shallow drainage ditch off a nearby creek. They later discovered a fifth victim as well, a 51-year-old woman named Dorothy Lemke, who had gone missing from Northboro, Massachusetts a month earlier. She too had met Cornelius Pearson from the personal ads, and she'd gone missing after withdrawing $1,500 from her bank account. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure 
and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. The autopsy results concluded that Asta and her children had been starved and tortured before being put to death. Evidence indicated that Asta had been hanged from a ceiling beam in full view of her children. Area of Powers beat Asta's son to death with a hammer when he tried to struggle free from his bonds to save her. Powers then went on to castrate the boy before death. Both of his sisters showed signs of strangulation and further torture as well. Powers insisted to investigators that he had no idea how the bodies had gotten onto his property and that someone else must have buried them there. It was a different time for police back then, before surveillance cameras and other recording devices, which allowed them a certain freedom when it came time to beat the hell out of a suspect. For eight hours straight, Powers was punched, kicked, flogged with a rubber hose, beaten with a hammer, burned with cigarettes, and jabbed with sharp needles. By the time interrogators were finished, his left arm was broken, his flabby body was a mess of welts and bruisers, and he was ready to give a full confession. News of the atrocities Powers committed upon the Widow Iker and her children had spread throughout the community. Hundreds of people poured into Clarksburg Funeral Home where the five victims were laid out in open coffins. By Sunday, August 30th, an estimated 30,000 people had made the trip out to see the murder farm, as the papers were calling it. Dozens of policemen were dispatched to direct traffic and maintain order. A couple of locals even erected a makeshift wooden fence around the property and began charging admission. They had only managed to enrage the mob further, and they tore down the barricade and ran roughshod over the property. Over the next few weeks, the newspapers would go on to dub the man currently known as Harry F. Powers as the Bluebeard of Quiet Dell, after the legendary murderer notorious for killing his wives. Investigators would eventually learn that Harry F. Powers was another alias, and in fact, the man's real name was Herman Drenth. He was born in Holland in 1892, and he immigrated to the U.S. in 1910. He had traveled throughout the Midwest for years before ending up in West Virginia in 1926, during which time he had managed to do two stints in jail for burglary and fraud. In 1929, he married his wife Lula, herself a divorcee. Her previous husband had been a farmer who had been arrested for murder after fracturing the skull of a neighbor during an argument. It wasn't long after the pair were wed when Powers came up with his matrimonial bureau scheme. He joined several of the organizations and waited for the potential victims to come to him. At the time of his arrest, he was found possessing five sealed and stamped envelopes addressed to women in different parts of the country. The public remained outraged about what Powers had done. Things still hadn't simmered down since the incident where the mob tore down the fence and stormed the property. On Saturday, September 19th, a lynch mob of more than 4,000 men and women surrounded the jailhouse where Powers was being held. A small army of armed police officers stood their ground before them and ordered them to disperse or they'd open fire. The mob ignored them and surged forward. Police fired a few warning shots over their heads before they began lobbing canisters of tear gas at them. The rioters stumbled back choking as Powers was hustled out the rear of the building where he was driven to the state penitentiary where he would remain in solitary confinement until his trial. A well-known forensic psychiatrist named Edwin H. Myers examined Powers and declared him legally sane before going to trial. Myers reported that while Powers was clearly motivated by greed, 
He was also possessed by an exaggerated lust to kill that dominated his personality. County officials recognized how much spectators would want to attend Power's trial, so they moved the venue to the City Opera House, the largest structure in town. The judge, jury, witnesses, and attorneys on both sides of the aisle were seated on stage for five days as the trial went on. Powers remained emotionless throughout the trial even as a guilty verdict was read out against him. He maintained that same bland demeanor right up until the day they led him to the gallows in Moundsville State Penitentiary three months later, when the hangman asked him if he had any last words after the noose was placed around his neck. Powers calmly replied no, just before they hit the switch, and he dropped six feet, snapping his neck instantly and killing him. In 1953, author Davis Grubb wrote a novel titled Night of the Hunter, inspired by Powers' story, about an evil preacher who woos, weds, and murders a young mother for her money, then pursues her orphan children when they flee with the cash. In 1955, Charles Lawton directed the classic film version of the novel. Robert Mitchum's portrayal of the insane villain with the words love and hate tattooed on his knuckles is considered by many to be one of the greatest villains in film history. Between 1947 and 1949, a couple named Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck came up with a similar scheme to Harry F. Powers. Together they may have killed as many as 20 women. Today, they're known as the Lonely Hearts Killers. During World War II, Fernandez served in both Spain's Merchant Marines as well as British intelligence. He was injured while on board a ship bound for America when a steel hatch fell on him, damaging his frontal lobe. He later served a year in prison for theft where he claimed that his cellmate taught him the ways of black magic and voodoo, which gave him magical powers of irresistibility to women. After that, he began answering Lonely Hearts ads looking for women to rob. One of Fernandez's early victims was a woman named Jane Thompson, whom he took to Spain where she died under mysterious circumstances. Fernandez inherited her estate thanks to a forged will. Martha Beck was born Martha Seabrook, she ran away from home as a teenager. She claimed later in life that she'd been molested by her brother, and that when she tried to tell her mother about it, her mother beat her. She became pregnant twice out of wedlock, first from a serviceman who died during the war, then the second time with a bus driver named Alfred Beck, whom she briefly married and divorced, keeping his name. She and Fernandez met, of course, through the personal ads, only this time was different for the both of them. It was love at first sight for Martha Beck. She abandoned her children for Fernandez, leaving them to the Salvation Army as proof of her love for him. Fernandez reciprocated by confiding in her about his crimes. From there, the two of them became accomplices in crime. Beck would often pose as Fernandez's little sister, which helped put his victims at ease. Although they were suspected of killing as many as 20 people during their time together, the pair were ultimately only tried for a single murder that of 66-year-old Janet Fay. In 1949, then 35-year-old Fernandez became engaged to the woman. She moved into his Long Island apartment. When Beck found the two of them in bed together, she took a ball-peen hammer to Fay's head. She then finished the old woman off by choking her with a scarf. During her trial, Beck claimed to have no memory of killing Fay. She remembered Fernandez talking to her about the woman, the next thing she remembered was standing over Faye's body. The two of them hid Faye's body in a trunk that they later buried in the cellar of the house where Fernandez's sister was living in Queens, then covered the grave with cement. 
In Grand Rapids, Michigan, Fernandez and Beck met with a woman named Delaphine Downing, a widow with a two-year-old daughter named Raynell. They lived with Downing for several weeks. When she and Fernandez began sleeping together, it drove Beck into a jealous rage. Things got out of hand when Downing began to get suspicious of Beck's relationship with Fernandez. Downing's daughter began to cry with all the tension that was going on, and Beck choked the little girl into unconsciousness. Realizing things were going downhill fast, Fernandez shot Downing while she slept. They remained in the woman's house for two days. They drowned the little girl in a basin of water, and they buried both bodies in the basement. That day they went to the movies. When they returned, the police were waiting for them. Fernandez and Beck were tried for the death of Janet Fay and not Downing and her daughter, since New York had the death penalty and Michigan did not. Initially, Beck confessed to several killings in the hope that he could avoid extradition to New York. It didn't work, though, and both he and Beck went to the electric chair, still professing their love for another right to the bitter end. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I've received an overwhelming amount of positive feedback about the show, both in your iTunes reviews and on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. We're also available on Stitcher and the Google Play Store. We have a special episode coming up soon featuring the amazingly talented Nina Instead from the Already Gone podcast. Thanks again, and I hope you tune in again next week.